Hello and welcome to Market Matters, Thomson Hines podcast series that explores critical legal and regulatory issues affecting the investment management industry. I'm Mike Weibel, a partner in the Investment Management Group. Today I'm joined by David Wilson, a partner in our White Collar Investigations Group. David specializes in SEC enforcement matters. Today we're going to talk about SEC enforcement, looking at what the enforcement division has been focusing on and going into some thoughts about handling situations where enforcement or another division sends an informal inquiry or request or a subpoena. David, I understand you recently attended the SEC Speaks conference and heard from senior SEC staff. Yeah, that's a, uh, a two-day conference in Washington. Normally it's held in February due to the government shutdown. It, it got moved to April. So it, last month, um, it was two days where SEC commissioners and senior enforcement staff get together to re- review the results of the last fiscal year, talk about priorities, and, and take questions from the audience. So it's, uh, it's a great way to get a view into what the SEC enforcement staff is thinking and um, help clients plan for ways in which they can avoid uh, being under SEC scrutiny. Oh, so what are some of the things that the SEC is thinking about? What did you learn at the conference? Well, I can't cover everything that happened over the course of two days, but there were some very key themes. Um, as anybody who's followed the SEC knows, they've been very focused on Main Street investors, the retail investor and investor protection. That's a theme that was set by uh, Chairman Clayton at the outset of the conference. Uh, for registers and investment advisors and broker-dealers and other financial professionals, I think the main things um, to highlight are um, they're very interested in conflicts of interest. They are focused on disclosures, making sure disclosures are in plain English that would be understandable to um, a Main Street investor. Uh, they focus on fees charged. We'll talk a little bit about that uh, later in a particular uh, initiative that they've had. They look at suitability of investment recommendations. Data protection and security, obviously, um, you have to be under a rock not to see that that's a focus of almost every regulatory agency in the government now. Of course, they're always interested in things like stock manipulation, insider trading, accounting fraud. So, but, but those are some of the things that were covered. Well, with all those things that they covered, did any particular enforcement action catch your attention? Well, I guess for our audience, I'd say that um, there were a few um, that, I'd, that I'd like to highlight. A couple of areas. On the themes of uh, fees, conflicts of interest, and disclosures, there was a lot of discussion of the Enforcement Division's Share Class Selection Disclosure Initiative, which was last year. There was a, uh, an initiative to get investment advisors to voluntarily disclose uh, situations where they receive 12B1 fees for investments that may not have been the appropriate share class to put a, uh, an investor into and where perhaps disclosure was not as clear as, um, as, it, as it could have been. In March, the division announced that they had settlements with 79 investment advisors who took advantage of the self-reporting initiative to resolve the SEC's claims, and those resolutions were without a civil penalty. But there was a recovery of $125 million that was returned to investors, and the SEC says that a vast majority of that went to uh, retail investors. So that was something that was very important and something to pay attention to going forward. You know, I, I, I saw last week or a couple of weeks ago that 
uh, the SEC is following up with some of those uh, firms that did not self-report. That's right. Um, this is anecdotal, but we understand that there have been some informal inquiries directed at companies where the SEC may have had tips or gotten some other information that there were issues with share class selection. So they've sent out notices to some companies asking for information on that. So you may see some enforcement actions coming down the pike. And for our listeners, think about what your disclosures are and and what your share class selections are. One other area uh, on the data protection front, you know, last year the commission brought its first enforcement action under Reg SID. It's a regulation that was promulgated under Dodd-Frank that requires regulated firms to have identity theft protection programs. Uh, In September of last year, the commission settled with Voya Financial Advisors uh, with a cease and desist order, um, a whole set of compliance undertakings, and a civil penalty of a million dollars. In the case, the SEC alleged was that Voya had let cyber intruders impersonate its contractors and access personal information of Voya customers. You know, that was an extreme case, but I think, you know, like for every business out there these days, you have to expect more attention to the enforcement of this, this regulation and, and anything to do with data security uh, for, for customers, particularly on financial matters. And, you know, I'd just like to add, too, that in addition to the enforcement action the SEC has been taking, uh, the Office of, of uh, Compliance Inspections and Examinations, or OC, has also issued a risk alert on privacy and regulation S- SP, and is, um, you know, where they, where they highlight certain um, items that they found in examinations, and that's going to be a, a continued focus of theirs going forward. So, David, on enforcement procedures, did you learn anything new? Well, nothing really new, but there's a lot of discussion. Um, you know, the SEC always wants cooperation with those who are, are regulated. Um, and, you know, that's not necessarily an instinctive thing when the government comes calling. But there was a lot of discussion about what the SEC looks for in cooperation and what benefits you can get from the enforcement division if you do cooperate in the ways that they, that they want. It's how you can get a better deal if there's an enforcement case. Uh, you might even avoid an enforcement case if you are cooperative in the way that they want it. Of course, the decision on something like that has to be made based on uh, the facts and circumstances. Cooperation is generally advisable, but there may be instances where you simply want to defend. But the directors of the enforcement division spent a fair amount of time talking about what they view as real cooperation as opposed to fake cooperation, faux cooperation, they called it. Talk about how it helps the division. They gave specific examples of cases where an entity or an individual who provided what they viewed as true, meaningful cooperation in an investigation got a better result than in an analogous case where cooperation was absent. So it sounds like cooperation is a good idea if you if it if you can if you can do it. What are some of your rules that you counsel clients to um, to follow if they decide to cooperate with division enforcement? Well, I, I do have sort of rules of the road generally, and I do generally think that you know in dealing with the SEC over the course of my career, any whiff that the SEC enforcement division has that you're not being cooperative just raises their antenna thinking there must be something wrong. So 
I've kind of developed rules of the road that I think might be helpful for our listeners to, to think about. Um, they're not always intuitive when you get a subpoena or an informal inquiry, but I do have sort of what I call, uh, with apologies to David Letterman, uh, my top 10 list. So what's number one? Well, number one, and I, this may sound a little self-interested, but I think you need to have a, a lawyer. Uh, I've seen situations, in fact, I'm taking over an enforcement matter now where the, the first lawyer that, that handled it didn't have any experience with SEC enforcement. The way the enforcement division has viewed the case is very, very adversely because of a lack of cooperation. So my number one uh, rule really is that you need to have somebody at least advising you on, on how to handle uh, an SEC investigation, what the enforcement division expects. You know, there's I've had clients sometimes say, well, if I get a lawyer, does that mean the SEC will think I'm, I, I've done something wrong? The answer is no. They already might think you've done something wrong, but they really expect and they appreciate having an experienced SEC lawyer working with them on the case. You want to make the enforcement staff feel that the response to an informal inquiry or a subpoena will be handled professionally and, and objectively. They tend to distrust people inside the company. They, they want to have somebody outside who, who they will develop trust in in terms of the representations that are made and, and documents that are being produced. All right, so uh, competent and professional counsel is number one. What's, what's next? Well, what I find is that a lot of times clients obsess about where is this coming from. And while I, I understand that, and sometimes that's helpful in trying to figure out what are the issues that SEC enforcement is interested in, but there are so many different ways that the enforcement division has of learning about situations that they want to investigate that sometimes, uh, you know, you're just guessing, and sometimes it can get you in trouble spending a lot of time on that. I mean, you, the enforcement division learns about uh, matters they want to investigate by reading the newspaper. Sometimes they engage in industry sweeps. They use increasingly data analytics, particularly in the area of insider trading matters. There are tips from whistleblowers. Uh, sometimes there are tips that come in from competitors or from business partners. And then sometimes they get referrals from other agencies, particular uh, matters get passed on from FINRA, but also from any other uh, federal agency that's investigating something. So I would say think about where this might be coming from because it may help you, but don't spend a lot of time on it. And particularly, be careful where you have an inkling that there may have been a whistleblower because if it's an employee, uh, there are all kinds of whistleblower protections that are out there that if you really think it's a whistleblower and it turns out to be a whistleblower and you've taken adverse action, all kinds of other problems can occur. So, so David, after you receive an inquiry from the from the from the enforcement staff, do you recommend contacting uh, them or reaching them back out to the to the staff? I do, and and in fact, um, I recommend doing that as quickly as possible, pretty much right away. Uh, don't wait until there's always going to be a deadline for the, whatever the request is or the subpoena, and and what you want to do is reach out as quickly as possible. That demonstrates that you're taking the matter seriously. If you need more time, they almost always will give you an extension on a deadline unless there's something imminent that they're worried about. To some extent, you can often learn a little bit about the focus of the inquiry. 
requests are almost always very broadly written. And in talking with the enforcement staff who sent out the inquiry or the subpoena, you can, while they won't tell you, well, what we're, what we're interested in is this particular conduct, if you say, well, uh, we're trying to narrow this down so that it's a manageable amount, they'll give you uh, maybe limitations on date, limitations on the number of people whose documents need to be searched, or the kinds of material they need that'll give you a clue as to, as to what you're looking for. But don't expect that the staff is going to say, well, what we're interested in is X, Y, and Z. They keep that pretty close to the vest. But I think uh, another thing to do that is helpful to your organization is when you have that first contact with the SEC enforcement staff, you can request that any inquiry, any contact by the staff to anybody uh, within the organization come through counsel. You don't want the enforcement staff reaching out to um, your individual employees. And you can also say to them, uh, if you want help finding uh, former employees, I wouldn't necessarily volunteer this, but the idea is you want to try to learn as much as you can about where they're going, who they're talking to, what information they're getting. You want to stay even with the SEC or perhaps even ahead of the SEC in terms of learning the facts that they're gathering. So if you know who they're trying to reach, uh, it may help you determine what they're going after. Hey, David, you had said something earlier about uh, if you have questions about information that, that uh, they're asking for or understanding what they're, what they're asking for, looking at, looking at their you know, the requests that they've made. Um, We've had clients that have said, hey, the SEC asked for documentation on this transaction, and, and, and it was a completely oral, oral transaction, and we just handled it orally. Should we create a document? Should we create a memo? Should we create something? What's your advice to, to, to a client in that situation? Well, it's, it's hard for me to imagine that any transaction is completely oral. And what I'd worry about in a situation like that is recreating something that that may not necessarily bear a relationship to what actually happened you know due to faulty memories or whatever so what I would suggest in that situation is there's got to be emails text messages memos draft documents and so my suggestion would be go back and look at all that stuff uh, see if there's a way of putting it together and rather than writing a long memo to the SEC Again, depending on facts and circumstances, uh, perhaps just go in and make an oral presentation to the SEC about the transaction. So don't recreate anything? I don't think so. All right, good idea. Um, all right, so you talked about communicating with the SEC, and, and um, you know, how would you do that? How, what kind of approach would you, would you take? Well, again, um, this is rule number four. I think you have to try to build a cooperative relationship with the SEC staff. You, you can't approach this at the outset as an adversarial process, even though you may feel adversarial toward the SEC and, you know, why are they asking me these questions? But if you take an adversarial approach, um, the SEC really has the ability to make your life even more miserable than it is if you're cooperating voluntarily. And that means that the investigation is going to go on longer. Um, these investigations can go on for years. So you really need to avoid aggressive uh, litigation-type tactics. You want the staff to trust whatever the representations are that you're making. So don't make representations early on in the process uh, until you really know the facts. Uh, they will understand if you say, uh, listen, I've just gotten um, your request. I need to dig into it. 
Um, we're going to try to get you the information that you want. You need to develop some degree of trust. Uh, they need to be able to rely on what you say if you're saying, look, I've produced all the documents that you've asked for. You want them to be believing you. So establishing a rapport early on, I think, is very important. Um, so so that's, how you, that's your recommendation on communicating with the staff. What about communicating internally? Uh, in the company that received the, the subpoena or the request. Okay, well not to get too hung up on numbers, but let's call this rule number five. You need to appoint somebody in-house to be a coordinator, the, the person who uh, basically directs traffic on this. It should be somebody who's familiar with the personnel of the organization and its information system. You're always going to have to produce documents, so it should be somebody who can help gather documents. And it shouldn't be somebody who's within potentially within the scope of the investigation. In terms of general rules on communication within the organization, I would say that you know the fewer people that are communicating within the organization, the better. You don't want to create an impression on the part of the SEC that people within the organization are talking to each other to try to coordinate stories or, or, or something like that. The story is going to come out in the documentation that you provide and what you want to do is be able to coherently assemble all of the record and figure out um, what's the narrative that you want to present to the SEC. And doing that really requires keeping control of the number of people within the organization who are involved in working all that out. So one of the um, most anxiety-producing um, activities, I think, is, is collecting all that information and getting it done by the, by the deadline and, mm -hmm. and getting the right information. How do you recommend going about that process? Well, the first thing you have to do is to send out a document hold notice. Uh, the SEC expects that, and you have to identify who are the people who conceivably have documents that are being asked for by the SEC. So you have to identify the key custodians. Sometimes you will have a conversation with the SEC staff and just say, um, listen, in fact, I had one of these just yesterday where I said, I need to get a sense of the number of people whose documents we need to search. It's a big organization. Can we limit it to four or five custodians? And sometimes they'll give you the names. So, well, here are the people that we think might have, um, might have been involved. So identify the key custodians. If you're making judgment calls either with or without the uh, assent of the SEC staff, you want to document what it is you're doing so you have a record. So you go back later, it's amazing. You get uh, a few months down the road in one of these investigations uh, and you want to be able to remember what you did. It's important to document, okay, well, um, on this date we collected the documents of this person and we had a discussion with the SEC staff where they said you can limit it to these four custodians. So that's important. Conduct document collection interviews with people. A, a lot of times um, clients will say, well, can we let each individual collect the documents? Sometimes that's okay, but either somebody within the organization or your outside counsel should be having a discussion with the person just so that you can make sure you have a good sense of what documents exist and that the person has done a thorough review of what documents might be responsive. And finally, I'd say if there is a 
document destruction protocol in your organization, suspend it. Don't you know? One of the worst things that can happen is that the the SEC asks for a document that existed at the time they sent the subpoena or the informal inquiry, and it's been destroyed after that as a result of a of a normal document uh, destruction protocol. I know you, people are accumulating huge amounts of data now, and there's a temptation to just continue to. Uh, go forward with uh, destroying old documents, but but you don't want to do that while you have a, an SEC subpoena out there. So, so this sounds like actually getting out the, the, the word or putting out um, uh, the, the document hold um, within the organization is, is of critical importance. And, and do you have any suggestions on just how someone does that? I guess it mainly depends on organization by organization, the, the number of people you have to contact, but it sounds like you need your records management people, IT, because uh, it includes emails, right? Absolutely. Things like that. And, and increasingly text messages. Um, uh, they're asking now for things like WhatsApp, um, uh, Instagram. I mean, uh, I, so any social media, any social any kind media, product delivery, yep. as well as, as hard paper documents. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and it's. The more media there are now um, than there used to be, uh, it just it just makes it more difficult. So, so that so quick action on that is it would be critical. Absolutely. Um, you know, when when a client receives a uh, inquiry from a, from enforcement, they're obviously very nervous, <laughs> understandably, and, and want to figure out what happened and, and what they what the SEC wants. What do you what do you recommend in that situation? Well, the most important thing is is you got to learn the facts and. So there's going to be a certain amount. Uh, clients have to be patient that um, uh, whoever's helping you with it is going to have to spend a lot of time talking to people, reviewing documents, and so on. And it can be a painstaking process. Uh, clients, of course, always want to know, well, A, what is this about? B, um, what are they after? C, how long is this going to take? And finally, you know, what's going to happen to us? And, and I can't answer those questions until I understand what the facts are. You, you want to be able to lay out all those facts and then you analyze those facts and try to determine where under the securities laws might the SEC staff be going. So you, you're going to have to review all the documents before you produce them to the SEC. I know that um, that may take time, but there's really no substitute for that. Once you've looked at those documents, you probably need to conduct substantive interviews with the people whose documents you've collected so you understand the meaning of some of those documents and inevitably there are documents there that um, you need to have people explain but only by being on top of the facts can we develop a strategy uh, that has the best chance of positioning the company for either the benefits of cooperation if there's been a violation or explaining to the SEC and persuading them that there's no reason to, to bring a case you can't be in a position of making factual assertions to the SEC staff that ultimately are not going to be borne out by the facts that you learn. All right, so David, what if what if in, in your investigation you find um, something that is a violation? What should you do in that case? Well, the first thing I would say is is you fix it. There are many instances where in the course of an investigation you learn that indeed um, what the SEC is investigating and you suspect that they think is wrong, in fact is wrong. And under those circumstances, the worst thing you can do is try to hide it. And what you really ought to do is you fix it. And then you tell the SEC, okay, we learned this and we fixed it. 
that goes to this theme that they have of compliance, 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 and cooperation, cooperation, cooperation. And many instances you can say, almost like uh, thanks to your uh, inquiry to us, and I'm sure nobody's in a position of wanting to thank the SEC Enforcement Division for, for coming in, but um, you can say, we learned this and we took proactive action to correct it. And you get, you get credit for that. So it, it goes to this, this concept of compliance. So we talked about gathering information, we talked about reporting facts, um, we talked about documenting what you're doing. Who in the, what we haven't talked about is who in the company should be involved in, in, in this process? Well, we, we, we did say earlier that you need to have essentially a quarterback within the organization, somebody who's, whose conduct couldn't be within the scope of the investigation. Beyond that, you, you do want to limit the number of people who are involved. And, and this is a balancing act because you want to make sure your document hold notice goes out to all the right people. But what you don't want to do is be creating additional people who learn about it because that can affect the morale of an organization. Uh, there can be loose talk within an organization, going to be temptations that people have to, to talk about this, and that can change people's view about, about what happened. It also can lead to waivers of privilege. If there are uh, a number of people who say, well, the lawyers came in and advised us this, that could conceivably be a waiver of privilege, and so you have to be, you have to be careful. You never want the SEC to think that people within the company are coordinating their stories or influencing memories, even if that's not occurring, if they hear that there's a lot of talk within an organization. So you do want to limit as much as you can uh, consistent with finding out the facts, the number of people who are involved in this from the morale standpoint and just from a strategic standpoint. All right, so you said there were 10 rules. Uh, what's, your, what's the last one? Uh, okay, uh, rule number 10. I guess in line with the rule about building a cooperative relationship with the SEC staff, it's stay in communication with the SEC. They're not going to go away uh, if you ignore them. Um, so you really want to have periodic telephone and, and possibly in-person meetings with the SEC staff. That allows you to, to address the concerns that the staff raise. It, it helps you understand where they're going with this. Inevitably, when you have a dialogue, you get a feel for what they're looking for. It enables you to describe the, the, the measures you're taking to comply with the requests um, and to understand the status of their review. You need to meet the deadlines that they set, and if you can't meet a deadline, let them know as early as possible. You need to be candid about the mistakes or the bad conduct. Uh, that goes with uh, uh, rule number eight that we talked about. Again, don't assume that the SEC is going to go away if you ignore them. You want to build a cooperative relationship with them if you can. How do you know when they're done? Do they, do they, do they tell you that they're closing the investigation and that they have no other questions? Or? Uh, sometimes. Um, you don't usually get an all-clear letter from them, but you can get a sense. Uh, sometimes they, they do fade away, but sometimes they come back after they fade away for, for a few months. I have one now that's come back after six months where we thought it was done. What you don't want is uh, knowing that the investigative phase is done because they call you up and they say, this is your Wells call. And for, just for our listeners, a Wells call or a Wells notice is what? A Wells notice is basically, here's, we're in a position now where we're going to make a recommendation. We as the staff are going to make a recommendation to the commissioners to bring an enforcement action against your client. That's never a call that you want to get. 
when that happens, um, you, they will explain to you what the, the uh, provisions are that they believe have been violated. Uh, and then you have an opportunity to submit what we call a well submission that tries to explain to the staff why it's a bad idea for them to, to bring a, a case. So that's, again, a hope you don't get to that phase. All right. Well, David, thank you very much for joining us today and sharing your experiences with, um, with our audience. And thank you for listening to Market Matters. I hope you found the information shared during today's program valuable. If you'd like to learn more about today's topic or Thompson Hines Investment Management Group, please visit ThompsonHine.com. With approximately 400 lawyers in eight offices, Thompson Hine is a full-service business law firm recognized for innovation and client service. Our smart path approach provides clients with service that is predictable, efficient, and aligned with their goals.